Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Oh, there's, you know what we've had? And you know what, Knockwood? Uh-huh. We've had some incredible guests on our show. Oh, absolutely. We have not had a single person where after we finished recording and we pulled off our headphones and we were like, oh my Yikos. God, what are we going to do with this <laughs> audio? It is useless. So, <laughs> and I think our streak is continuing again, oh, Knockwood. Absolutely. Uh, because we have a very exciting guest today and a very exciting topic that I just cannot wait to have my mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all the way from Canada. 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 We have Sonia Kutharidis. Hello, Sonia. Sonia, welcome. Hello. I'll be talking to you guys about the placenta today. Lightning We've already immediately alienated 50% of our listeners, and that's fine. Maybe not. I mean, (laughs) we have met a lot of our listeners in various contexts, and they are weirdly mostly men. (laughs) And and no matter what we talk about, they seem to like it. So it's true. I take back that statement. You know what? Frankly, I feel like men need to learn more about women's bodies. Exactly. Whether they are interested in women's bodies or not. So. Sonia, you are providing a service today, and we're very excited. <laughs> I absolutely agree. I really hope we didn't turn off half of the listeners. I do think it's a really interesting topic and just something to it's that's good to know in general. Exactly. I totally agree. Uh, so, Sonia, yeah. whenever you are ready, please take us into the lower abdominal region of Go a ahead, female presenting going. body. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. So I'm going to start off by giving a really brief overview of human reproduction. I think it'll be a good way to kind of start us out for people that aren't as familiar with this. Mm -hmm. So human reproduction is defined as any form of sexual reproduction resulting in the fertilization of a woman's egg, also known as an ovum, by a man's sperm. Now the ovum is normally stored in the ovaries and it is released from the ovary and will travel and meet the sperm in the fallopian tube. So sperm actually have a longer distance to travel uh, to make this trip, but it's fine because they're much better swimmers. So it works out. (laughs) (laughs) So these two single cells combine and they create a single cell called a zygote. And these zygotes, they'll contain chromosomes from each parent, half-half. Do either of you know how many chromosomes are in a zygote? (laughs) Oh, Julia, do you remember this? (laughs) 20? 23? Ooh, three. 23. Yes. Yes. Good job. Yes. (laughs) Amazing. So the zygote contains 23 chromosomes from each parent. And this basically... Uh, gives the zygote the genetic material from each parent. So whether you have blue eyes, green eyes, color of your skin, you know, certain habits, even now this is going to come from the genetic material of your parents. Ah, 23 and me. Yeah, that's what I immediately thought of. Yeah. (laughs) There we go. Exactly. So they'll code your genes, I'm pretty sure. And then they ask you whether or not you want to release your genome data for science. Mm. I think that's how it works. 
So um, what happens in the first 24 hours after fertilization, this single cell zygote, it'll rapidly divide. So it'll split in half and you'll end up with two cells. And then those will each split again. You'll end up with four, mm -hmm. eight, 16, and they'll just keep dividing until you end up with this uh, tiny little cell mass that's about 0.2 millimeters in diameter. I know it's metric, but just to give you an idea, it's about the size of medium coarse grain of sand. Oh, wow. so that's very tiny. Yeah. 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 So this all happens at by around day four, you have this tiny grain of sand. This cell mass will then hollow out to form something called a blastocyst. It is a round fluid filled shell with a cell mass that looks as if it's squished onto the inside of the inner cell wall. So the inner cell mass will eventually form the embryo and then the fetus, whereas the outer shell of the blastocyst uh, is composed of trophoblast cells, and that will eventually compose the placenta. Okay. So That's you have there. Nice. Yeah. So you have these two different cell types that give rise to do two different parts of the embryo and the placenta. So uh, like I said, the blastocyst, the outer shell is composed of a cell type called trophoblast cells. And these, we are going to come back to them later. They are super important. But this cell type basically allows the, this blastocyst to embed itself into the woman's uterus. Okay. And yeah, so so they tend to have a little bit more invasive properties. Oh, okay. So they will <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> It does. It sounds a little aggressive, yeah. but it is essentially what happens. Um it'll invade into the mother's tissue and that's how it allows itself to grow and to feed off the nutrients of the mother like a little vampire. <laughs> yeah, right. So a placenta and by extension, a fetus is a parasite is what you're telling me. From a medical perspective, is this true? I wouldn't go as far as that. No? Okay. <laughs> it feels like it. Though. Oh, okay. I mean, from experience, I think you would, you would be able to let us know that. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, so yeah, it does, it does tend to invade the mother. Um, <laughs> and so the uterus, for those who are not familiar with female biology, female anatomy is a hollow muscular organ located in the female pelvis between the bladder and the rectum. So on the lower end of the uterus is the cervix, which is the opening to the vagina. And that's from where the baby exits during childbirth. Mm -hmm. So the uterus is generally composed of two layers. You have an external layer, which is a much thicker layer. It's called the myometrium. And it is basically a huge, thick, muscular layer. And that's what allows you to push the baby out during childbirth. So mm -hmm. this is the part of the uterus that really does the pushing. Mm. And then you have a much thinner cell layer called the endometrium. And uh, this is the part that will thicken during your menstrual cycle and your ovulation cycle. Mm. And it is shed during menstruation. Mm -hmm. So it'll thicken, it'll grow 
big blood vessels to kind of prep itself for the in for the potential incoming uh, zygote. Mm-hmm. And then if it's not used by the end of your ovulation period, your endometrium is shed and that's your period. Okay. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm following so far. What a great way to explain that too. Because I don't think they told us that in the fourth grade class when no. we went over what periods were. No. In, in fourth grade, it was like, if if you don't have a baby inside you, you bleed the end. <laughs> Make sure you take your iron. <laughs> Amazing. But yeah, I think I think there is a little bit of a a little bit of an issue yeah. <laughs> with uh, kind of learning about the reproductive system. Maybe and, it's gotten better in the 25 years oh, since we were in high school, but I don't know. Maybe. I mean, who knows? I had a really good sex ed class in high school. It was a, it, we went through all the STIs and everything and I thought it was pretty useful, but it really depends on the school. I it had really a friend does. that told me they just walked in and they just handed out condoms and that is yeah. sex ed class. It was a lot like exactly like Mean Girls where he's like, if you have sex, you will get chlamydia and, and you, will, you die. will die. <laughs> like, <laughs> Thank you, a public, uh, American public health, public school system. Thank you. <laughs> so... If there is conception, this endometrial lining will not have a chance to be shed because the blastocyst, so that round cell mass, will embed itself into the endometrium. (laughs) So it'll kind of squeeze itself in and grow cells and like latch on to your uterus. That's I the realize the part, wording. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Invading, yeah. latching, digging into, <laughs> laying in wait, you know. So actually, um, there have been a lot of parallels that are made between uh, these trophoblast cells and cancer cells because they do have similar invasion techniques and they do find a way to protect themselves against the mother's immune system. So because the fetus is technically can technically be considered a foreign body because it doesn't only have the genetic material of the mother. Mm -hmm. Right. So the father's genetic material can set off alarms, but um, the the fetus has ways of protecting itself against this uh, immune alarm system. Right. Amazing. So um, these trophoblast cells, they will invade into the mother's tissues, as I said, and they will actually restructure the mother's endometrium so that they can get the nutrients they need. So they go in and these cells actually produce enzymes that can break down the mother's blood vessels so that they Lauren's can- Lauren's freaking w- out. <laughs> Hold on. Sorry, Lauren's freaking out. God. No, keep going. I'm like, with stuff like this, I'm like both absolutely horrified yeah. and cannot tear my eyes and ears yeah. away. Like I need to know more, but I'm I'm dying inside. Yeah. <laughs> It is. It's a little frightening. Yeah. Oh my god. Wow. So, I didn't realize that. No. Yeah. So they'll so they'll go in and they'll release these enzymes that'll enzymes that'll break down the tissue and the blood vessels, and they will actually restructure the mother's blood vessels in the endometrium to be larger. Okay. So they'll they'll go from like really tiny, thin, flimsy blood vessels, and they'll come in and they'll create this like funnel shape to be able to funnel in. Ooh. blood into the area so that the fetus can survive and get the nutrients that it needs. So once this process begins, 
um, the blastocyst will continue to grow into the mother's uterus and it'll eventually develop into the placenta and into the embryo. So at the start of around week five after fertilization, the blastocyst is then considered an embryo. So there's terminology at different stages. Mm-hmm. And this embryonic period of development is the stage in which most organs of the fetus begin to form. Okay. And, and at the end of week eight after fertilization, the embryo is then considered a fetus up until the moment until it is born. Okay. So the placenta will continue uh, growing along with the developing fetus and getting bigger and bigger. So the fetus is getting bigger and the placenta is going to get bigger because that's how the baby is fed, essentially. Mm-hmm. So you need to just kind of one has to follow the other. Yeah, exactly. So um, although the placenta grows along pretty much the entire gestational period. It is considered mature by the 34th week of pregnancy. 34 out of a typical 40 weeks of pregnancy is nine months. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've been talking about the placenta a lot. So what is the placenta? So the word placenta is actually from the ancient Greek word plax, and that means flat. Um, And then it is also from the Latin word for flat cake. So it went <laughs> ancient Greek to Latin, but they've maintained the definition. It's essentially a flat cake. A pancake. That's a pancake. A pancake, basically, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but why? Why a flat pancake? Am I missing something about the reference? I mean, that's what it looks like. It looks like a okay. giant red flat pancake gross okay cool cool cool. (laughs) (laughs) so the placenta is actually a temporary organ it connects the developing fetus to the mother's uterus during pregnancy via the umbilical cord so you're going to have this flat cake and connecting to the fetus directly uh with the umbilical cord which contains uh veins and arteries Uh, to pump blood between the placenta and the fetus. So the placenta, I think, is the most fascinating organ because it is the only organ that is composed of both cells derived from the fetus and from the mother. So no other organ uh, combines cells from two different individuals. Ooh, that's wild to think about. Also, a temporary organ. Right? Yes, because you do birth it at the end, and we'll come back to that when we go over the delivery of the placenta. Wow. Yeah, I mean, Julia's nodding, so (laughs) it's got to be true. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, it's composed from cells both derived from the mother and the fetus. The fetal part is called the chorion, and the maternal part is called the decidua. We'll come back to this uh, later, and I'll describe to you what each of those sections do. Okay. Now, the main function of this organ is, as we mentioned earlier, to provide oxygen and nutrients to the developing fetus. It also removes waste products from the fetal blood. So any type of waste generated by the the baby Mm -hmm. 
it is going to recirculate through the placenta and exit via the mother's bloodstream or be cleaned in the mother's bloodstream. So it also allows the transfer of antibodies from the mother to the fetus, which is very important. Now, this I find very interesting because the fetus, the baby's immune system is not fully developed by the time the mother gives birth. Mm-hmm. So the way that the fetus has an immune system is from the mother. So you are actually giving your antibodies mm. to the fetus so that when it comes out, it is protected against, you know, certain pathogens or certain viruses. Mm-hmm. That's why in certain uh, developing countries, they will vaccinate the mother while she is pregnant so that she can produce antibodies and transfer them to her fetus so that when the baby is born, it is protected against certain pathogens or bacteria that it'll come into contact with. That's interesting. Yeah. I know that I had to get like the Tdap. So that was like... Mm, tetanus and diphtheria and pertussis. I had to get that vaccine mm-hmm. while I while I was pregnant, but to pass that along to yeah. to Eleanor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That makes a lot of sense because then I mean you're not. I mean, ideally, I imagine you're not going to like birth a baby and then they're going to stick a bunch of needles in it and be like, "All right, now you have an immune system." Congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. And even if they did, it it would take some time. Mm. for the baby to actually produce these antibodies from the vaccination. So you would still have a period where the baby is essentially unprotected. Mm -hmm. So that's a really important part and function of the placenta. Now, another important function of the placenta is it actually provides a barrier Although it transfers nutrients and oxygen and waste and antibodies, it also provides a selective barrier between the mother and the fetus to prevent the transmission of some bacteria and viruses. Unfortunately, this does not cover all types of bacteria and viruses. Mm -hmm. There are some that can pass the placental barrier, but it is still um, impermeable to certain to certain bacteria and viruses. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, I've heard I I've heard that some transfer like I've heard that like HIV can transfer mm-hmm. to the fetus. Mm-hmm. But um but like if like say the mother gets the flu, that doesn't necessarily mean that the baby gets the flu as well or something along those lines. But I guess I never really thought about that as like an extra yeah. protective barrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and now people are trying to find out whether um, COVID-19 actually crosses the placental barrier. So another really important function of the placenta is that it produces hormones which support the pregnancy. It produces estrogen. It produces progesterone. It produces human chorionic gonadotropin, or HCG for short. And this is the protein that is detected in a pregnancy test. Mm, Okay. So it also produces a human placental lactogen, which breaks down fats from the mother to provide fuel for the growing baby. Mm. Uh, And we also have the umbilical cord that actually sprouts out from the placenta. 
And it starts to form at around week four and it's fully formed by week seven. And what most people don't know is that uh, humans do have a yolk sac at some point during initial phases <laughs> of gestation heard the gasp everybody <laughs> it's just like oh. and then her hands start rising up toward her face <laughs> oh we've got a yoke oh no <laughs> oh. so the umbilical cord does replace the yolk sac as the source of nutrients for the embryo so um what types of animals have placentas? You guys did an episode on different types of animals. Care for a mammals. Guess? Yeah, mammals. <laughs> I'd say mammals. Live uh, animals that give birth to live, live young. young. That's the phrase, right? Yes, yes. So, so mammals, and there are different types of mammals. And you did cover the different types of mammals in your episode eight, I believe, Strange Creatures. That was so long ago. And also, it's very good. It's First of all, oh, yeah, it's, very, it's good. very good. Thank you for referencing that. And, and it, it was, was so long oh ago. Oh, my God. It was years, <laughs> decades ago, as far as I can remember. <laughs> so there are three types of still existent subdivisions of the mammalia class. They are eutheria, the eutheria class. And these are referred to as placental mammals. These are the ones that we most readily associate with the placenta. And these mammals are characterized as carrying the fetus in their uterus during pregnancy until a very late stage of development. The name of this subdivision is a little bit of a misnomer actually, since marsupials also develop placentas during pregnancy to maintain the health of their fetus, although they have um, a more, and I quote, primitive (laughs) version of the placenta. There are monotremata. Mm-hmm. There are only five living species left, including the duck-billed platypus and four species of spiny anteaters. Therefore, they're really not a diverse group mm-hmm. uh, and they lay eggs instead of having a live birth. And finally, there are the marsupials which are kangaroos, koalas, wombats, Tasmanian devils, any creature that pretty much has a pouch. Or lives in Australia. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, for some reason, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. So all the remaining... All the remaining marsupials are actually endemic to Australasia and the Americas. So you have 70% in Australia and Asia and about 30% in uh, the Americas. The females will give birth to underdeveloped young, which climb their way into the mother's pouch located in the mother's abdomen and are carried until fully developed. I always found this completely insane because I can't imagine a half-developed creature's uh, creature crawling its way yeah. into the mother's pouch. Yeah, and it's not like <laughs> internal. Like at one point, some kangaroo mom is just like having a nap or like a snack or whatever, and this tiny wet thing is like, yeah like crawling its way up its body and that's normal that's like uh, what if we had that could you imagine just like walking around target you're at work and you're like oh no i gotta get to the bathroom i'm so sorry guys my baby is crawling into my pouch right now and you know there'd be parties around it and stuff like Uh, yay the pouch climb the pouch (laughs) (laughs) replaces the gender reveal completely absolutely pouch climb (laughs) 
something desperately does need to replace the gender reveal. <laughs> yes. Agreed. Yeah. So let me stop catching America on fire. Yeah, yeah. Let's just do the. Let's just imagine we're marsupials for at least another ten years, and instead of a gender reveal, we do the the theoretical pouch climb. <laughs> I hate it. I know. It's not a great idea, but you know. (laughs) So the marsupials during embryonic development develop something called a choreovitaline placenta, which is a more primitive version of the placenta found in placental mammals. So it's not as big of a flat pancake. It's a (laughs) primitive flat pancake. (laughs) (laughs) So, so we said that one of the main functions of the placenta is to function as a barrier between um, maternal blood and fetal blood. Mm-hmm. So there are three types of placenta throughout different species, and they are classified based on their attachment and invasiveness to the maternal tissue. Mm-hmm. So the least invasive is called epitheliochorial. And it is present in horses, pigs, cattle, sheep, goat, deer. Um, And there are actually three layers of maternal tissue separating the fetus from the maternal blood. So the more layers you add to this barrier, the harder it is to transfer transfer nutrients and to transfer oxygen. Mm -hmm. So this is the thickest layer and it is the least invasive. The next, the moderately invasive one is called endothelial and it is present in most carnivores, cats and dogs. Um, and only an endothelial wall of the maternal blood vessels and connective tissues separate the fetus from the maternal blood. And um, an endothelial wall is basically like a tightly, uh, a tightly knit, layer of cells okay Okay. and finally uh, there is the hemochorial placenta which is the most invasive and this is present in humans and other primates as well as rodents so this is one of the reasons why we do use uh rodents in animal studies when it comes to uh human placenta development it is because they have the same type of placenta although there are differences you're always going to get differences between animals and humans Mm -hmm. but that is why we use them as our models that's very interesting I guess you know like you always hear about like lab mice and that kind of thing but Mm -hmm. I guess I never really understood why they use mice instead of not instead of humans I shouldn't (laughs) have said that like why are we using people for human trials but like why why mice they don't they seem to be like the most opposite of us but that makes that makes a lot more sense huh Yeah, and these placentas actually have the thinnest barrier between the mother and the fetus. So you're getting tons of transfer between these two two individuals. Mm -hmm. So in humans, specifically, the placenta measures about nine inches in diameter and 0.8 to 1 inch in thickness on average. I did it in imperial units <laughs> just for it's this. Like a dinner plate. Yeah, that's that seems yeah. too big, frankly. I mean. So, <laughs> it's, it's about the size of a Frisbee, to give you an idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's a lot. No, I mean, enjoying this. I am. 
it's just it's just a lot coming at me about you know stuff about my body but yeah please <laughs> so so it's actually uh thicker in the center and it thins out on the edges mm. uh because the center is where the umbilical cord is attached okay. so it's a lot thicker so it's kind of like a little funnel ish going into the yeah umbilical cord. yeah a little bit because you're going to get thicker blood vessels in the center where mm-hmm. the umbilical cord is is attached and the blood vessels will branch out mm-hmm. like towards the ends so uh the placenta typically weighs about one and a half pounds which is lighter than i thought yeah my uh my friend maggie sorry i'm name checking you on the podcast she, she had it. twins and her placenta weighed 10 pounds no and the doctors were like writing it down like they were like <laughs> they were like i'm gonna make this a 10 a- plum placenta like <laughs> i'm gonna put this in a paper yeah the lancet will hear about this <laughs> oh, 10 pounds yeah oh my goodness oh my yeah God. bless you maggie bless you <laughs> her daughters they were are- very healthy big big babies big when they babies. were born too as twins so yeah. oh my goodness I, can't, I, I haven't asked my mom. I'm sure she doesn't remember, but I was a pretty big baby. I think I was eight pounds, 11 ounces. Like mm-hmm. I was pretty big. My mom gained, oh, she's going to kill me for this. <laughs> my mom <laughs> gained a hundred pounds and she's pregnant with me. Wow. Oh my goodness. Good for she, her. She was, uh, oh my God, she's going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> we can always edit this out. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so. So yeah, she gained a lot. That's why I was a pretty big baby. I'm surprised I wasn't bigger with that. Her gynecologist was furious. Furious. Yeah. Yeah. So the umbilical cord attached to the placenta averages a length of about 22 to 24 inches, which is so much longer than I thought because it doesn't have that. You don't have that much space between (laughs) the mother and the fetus. I don't know. It just gets folded up in there, I guess. Yikes. So the umbilical cord inserts itself into the placenta and it branches out into smaller blood vessels over the surface of the placenta and throughout the placenta itself. And it results in um, a villus tree kind of structure. Uh, and by villus, I just mean veins. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it's very similar. If you look at the top of it, it looks like the tree of life symbol. Okay. Ooh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting. I've seen a bunch of memes about it lately, <laughs> but it does, it does look very similar. So you get kind of the thicker um, veins and arteries from the umbilical cord and they branch out to smaller and smaller little blood vessels. Mm-hmm. So if you were to kind of slice the placenta in half and take a perfect cross section, you'd see a few things. So on one side, the side uh, that's attached to the umbilical cord, um, you would see the fetal side of the placenta. And this is also known as the chorion, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and it is composed of cells with a genetic profile of the fetus. Mm-hmm. Now, throughout this chorion, you would see these large blood vessels that come from the umbilical cord that branch off into these smaller blood vessels. And they get smaller and smaller as they go deeper into the placenta. So you end up with these branched structures filled with fetal blood vessels um, that sprout from the chorion and that are called chorionic villi. Okay. 
So you have these little tree structures that branch from the fetal side and are kind of um, pushing their way and growing towards the maternal side. So that's how it'll develop. It's trying to get closer and closer mm-hmm. to the mother's life source. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So kind of like tree roots, I guess, yeah, like growing into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So these chorionic villi, they are actually lined and covered with placental tissue. So you don't just have the fetal blood vessels. They are protected by um, a layer, a few layers of cells on the surface of these branch structures. And these layers, this is the main barrier Mm. between the mother's blood and the fetus. Okay. Okay. Because around these chorionic villi structures is just free flowing maternal blood. So yeah, so you have, so in the placenta, it's basically kind of a giant pool of mother's blood with little, (laughs) Lauren. Lauren, Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. So I'm imagining this, there's a lot of plant imagery in this, which I was not expecting coming into this episode. So the blood vessels on the fetal side are like dipping into like the water table of the mother's blood. So it's not like two separate sets of blood vessels, like combining to each other. It's literally like the fetal blood vessels are like sipping (laughs) from a giant lake (laughs) of mother's blood. Yeah, that's essentially a good way to describe it because the fetus at that point had already restructured the mother's blood vessels to create this pool. Mm -hmm. So it creates this pool that it is going to bathe in. (laughs) Julia, that happened to you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still here to talk. She's still here. Live to tell the tale. Yeah. So, so yeah, so these restructured maternal blood vessels, they are constantly dumping and circulating blood into this pool. Mm. And this pool is specifically called the intervillous space. So these maternal blood vessels are constantly dumping and circulating blood into this pool, which is called the intervillous space because it exists between the chorionic villi, mm. intervillous. Sure. Although if you were, say, a bunch of gynecologists who had their own trivia team, Intervilla Space would be a great trivia team name. <laughs> I mean, think about it, Sonia. I think it's a really good idea. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. I am notoriously terrible at trivia. <laughs> Ironically. <laughs> it's fine. All you need is a good team name and you get you get street cred, so... That's pretty good. That's true. That's mm-hmm. true. I'll keep that. I'll write that on my list of uh, potential trivia team names. Do it. It's very good. <laughs> so we've described essentially the fetal side of the placenta mm-hmm. up until now. The maternal side of the placenta is called the maternal decidua. Mm-hmm. So the word, the word decidua having the meaning of falling away mm-hmm. because it is shed during childbirth. So this tissue, the maternal decidua, actually used to be 
endometrial tissue. So like I described the inner lining of Mm. the uterus, this is restructured and it becomes the maternal decidua, which ends up being shed with the placenta. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it, it has the same properties as an endometria because it's eventually shed. Yeah. 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 So exactly. It is eventually shed. Mm -hmm. And the, the changes that undergo to the endometrium, they are guided by hormonal shifts Mm -hmm. during pregnancy. So I guess the most important things to take away from this um, so far is that the placenta is composed of both fetal and maternal cells. Mm -hmm. And there is a very thin barrier between the maternal blood and the fetal blood that controls the passage of nutrients, waste and oxygen. Mm -hmm. So those are the main takeaways. Um, Unfortunately, the placenta isn't always formed properly mm-hmm. and the initial blastocyst cell mass that has the future fetus in it does not embed itself in the right part of the uterus. Mm-hmm. So this is when you're going to get placental complications. And um, for all of my fellow hypochondriacs, you might want to Skip ahead a few minutes for this portion <laughs> because I just want to say that um, these complications are not common. Most of the time, you'll have a healthy pregnancy and a healthy placenta. Um, and that if there are any complications, they are usually detected during routine tests with mm-hmm. your gynecologist or um, by the onset of symptoms. So it's not something that um, you're coming into towards at the end of your third trimester and have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a few factors that, um, influence the health of your placenta and, um, the risk that you have with developing a certain complication. Mm -hmm. And it's going to really depend on things like your ethnicity, your history of smoking, Mm -hmm. whether you have high blood pressure um, if you have twins, triplets, so if you have a multiple gestation pregnancy, you're generally increasing your risk of complications. Mm-hmm. I say it as if it's optional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you have a blood clotting disorder, if you have um, a history of uterine surgery, such as a, a previous C-section, mm-hmm. um, if you have a history of placental pro- uh problems with previous, um, births. And also obviously if you have substance abuse, abdominal trauma, um, if you're at a really advanced age, all of these things, uh, play into, um, the, your incident, your chance of having any type of birth or placental complication, Mm -hmm. but this is generally standard, um, for any other, birth issues or complications. Yeah. This was something that, I mean, a famous case of this would be probably Chrissy Teigen, right? Like she has had, and has been very open about how she most recently lost her baby because of placental issues and her two previous births her healthy Mm -hmm. kids. She had, she had to deliver them early because she had such bad placental problems from Mm. both of those previous. So yeah, this makes, I mean, it seems like that's Mm -hmm. just part of the factor is like, if you've had this issue before, you're probably going to have it Mm -hmm. again kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I've categorized 
the the complication types into um, either placement and attachment related Mm -hmm. complications or growth and development um, complications. So um, the first one is placenta previa. So what this is, is normally during healthy pregnancy, the the placenta will normally implant and grow in the upper part of your uterus. Mm But you have placenta previa when the placenta actually attaches to the wall of the uterus very low down Mm. and the placenta actually blocks your cervix. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So a C-section is typically the only option for this because your placenta is is physically blocking Mm -hmm. the the baby's path to exit. But they they typically realize that pretty early on right yeah absolutely because yeah. it's super super early it's not like it and moves down that way. <laughs> no 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 it's it's it's, it's attached mm-hmm. it's attached to the uterus so they'll know that really early on and they'll they'll almost always schedule you for a c-section mm-hmm. in this case there is also placenta accreta, which is a very, very serious condition where the placenta grows too deeply into the u- uterus and it becomes embedded into the muscle. Oh. So, oh my God. <laughs> what? Okay, just real quick break here. Women's health is barbaric. <laughs> like, this is not that what, no, you're providing a service, Sonia. I'm certainly not blaming this on you, but our whole steez is absolutely messed up we gotta start (laughs) i'm learning all about this and at some point i'm like maybe i shouldn't know (laughs) yeah there is there is such thing as having too being too knowledgeable about all the things that could go wrong but also think about how nobody knew any of this for yeah that's true hundreds and hundreds of years yeah and like we only like in the 20th century figured out like this is why all these women were dying yeah yeah so um in the case of a placenta accreta um it will not detach during birth okay so so normally you're going to deliver the placenta after giving birth it won't detach because it is so heavily embedded into the uterus so in this case um, most of the time you need to have surgery to remove the remaining placenta and to stop any type of bleeding that occurs because mm. of this. Mm-hmm. So in really severe cases, if the bleeding doesn't stop, the entire uterus may need to be removed, but this is in the most extreme mm-hmm. cases. And, um, you obviously, if you have previously had a C-section or any type of surgery, that will increase uh, your risks of placenta accreta. But I believe that the the incidence is less than 1%, mm-hmm. I think, okay. it, yeah, of placenta accreta. So it's fairly low. It's very scary. <laughs> <laughs> so... The, the final complication that has to do with plus, uh, placement and attachment of the placenta is placental abruption. And this is essentially the opposite of placental accreta. It is when the placenta separates from the uterus during pregnancy. Mm. So you can have a partial separation or a complete separation. And sometimes if this happens towards the end of pregnancy, it might cause early, you might have to deliver early. Mm-hmm. And... 
we also have growth and development of placenta complications. Mm -hmm. One of them is placental insufficiency. So what will happen is um, when there's failure of the placenta to grow sufficiently to provide enough nutrients and oxygen to the fetus. And often this will, will result in an underweight um, baby mm. and uh, due to fetal growth restriction. So essentially the fetus is not getting enough nutrients or oxygen to keep growing to its full potential. So mm. it can be underweight at birth. And finally, placental infarts. An infart is an area of dead tissue in general. Um, and high blood pressure during pregnancy can increase the number of infarcts on the placenta. So you'll have these patches of dead tissue on your placenta. And when the tissue is dead, you cannot supply it blood. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you're going to have areas of the placenta that are not getting the blood flow. Wow. Um, that they would during a regular pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So this brings us to the delivery of the placenta. Um, and after delivery of the baby, I'm sure as Julia is well familiar, the contractions <laughs> will continue a little while longer until your placenta is delivered. Normally it's between 15 to 30 minutes. Was that, is that true? Was that true for you? Look, I don't know. <laughs> you didn't have any concept of time at the no time. No concept of time. I just kept being like, maybe I'll just pass out. Maybe I'll just pass out and then they'll give me some more drugs. That's, that's that was all what the you thoughts were hoping I have for? at this point. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it's not like, okay, we need you to push for another two and a half yeah. hours. No, yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't long after. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah, so... <laughs> So essentially, if your contractions aren't strong enough to deliver the placenta within around 30 minutes, um, they will go in and they will remove it for you. So um, I have a question. So yeah. there's a great song in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend called The Miracle of Birth. <laughs> by Paula, which I think we should make the thinking music. I'm just, I'm just putting that out there. But at I'm the, perfectly good with that. <laughs> at the end, she sings, um, and then you'll have to deliver the placenta or else you'll surely die. Mm -hmm. Now, is that true? If you don't deliver the placenta, will you die? <laughs> so um, if you don't deliver the placenta, there is risk of hemorrhaging and mm. infection. So... I guess. <laughs> yeah. This, this beautiful musical song took some liberties. Yeah. It took to a little, it, you know, yeah. You know, artistic license. Exactly. I mean, it's maybe it's less than a minute. So I can't imagine there's like a lot of, you know, in-depth information about all the process, just the, like the insane and gross and painful parts, you know. <laughs> oh my God. That's, that's an intro. I don't think I've heard that song. Oh, though. we'll send you the link. It's very yeah. good. It's very good. perfect. I'm curious to look into their views on uh, childbirth. Mm -hmm. It's quite good. So the period um, between the delivery and of the baby and the delivery of the placenta is called the third stage of labor or the afterbirth. Mm. The first, the first stage of labor being the dilation of the cervix and the second stage being when the baby actually moves through the birth canal until it is delivered. <laughs> Julia's having flashbacks. 
<laughs> I was in labor for 32 hours. So it was. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I think that was about the same as my mom. I, I, I took a while. <laughs> yeah, I remember getting a text message at like 1230 that night. And she was like, hi, um, uh, epidural is my new best friend. I'm very sorry to tell you this, but <laughs> I am going to go to sleep with my new best friend, epidural. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I'm not sure how it works in the United States, mm. but in Canada, um, it really varies between hospital to hospital what they will offer you, uh, with the options that they'll offer you for your placenta mm-hmm. after you give birth. So normally um, you're given two options. You're either given the option of disposal, so incineration, Mm -hmm. like they do for most biological biohazardous waste, or you can donate your placenta for either research or stem cell therapy, Mm -hmm. et cetera. I'm not sure what options you were given uh, do you remember? I, I do know remember. that I do know that I did not want to bring it home with me. <laughs> oh yeah, or, I have some questions. I think about that's that. option three yes. in some places. I think. don't worry. I, yeah, I got some questions for you about that. That might be our not safe for work. That that's misinformation <laughs> nights. But um, I think I, I I know that cord blood is definitely a thing that you can donate yeah. your mm-hmm. cord blood, and I imagine because that's part of the placental, I guess structure. Ooh, Ooh, did you hear me come up with yeah. that? Um, that I imagine that, yeah, that's probably the same in the States that you have the option of donating it for scientific research. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Because cord blood contains um, blood stem cells. Mm-hmm. So they can be used to treat people with certain genetic disorders, such as leukemia and even certain cancers and, Mm -hmm. you know, other inherited disorders. So you can donate your cord blood. And um, yeah, I always recommend donation because it's pretty easy. Like if you, unless you're taking it home, because some people do take it home Mm -hmm. um, and do a whole host of different things. Uh, If we have time, we can cover that. Because oh, we're going to talk about it. We're yes. talk I think about that's it. probably why most people are, you know, tuning in. Yeah, they're in. like, they're well, like, actually, I'm going to see. Tell me about some, tell me that. Tell me about some recipes that I can use. <laughs> 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 Sorry. I know Julie's going to have to take our chance for that. But anyway, Placenta yes. Send a chili. <laughs> you, <laughs> you were mentioning about the cord blood. I'm sorry to Sorry, about, Sonia. <laughs> no, of course. Um, but yes, you can donate your, your cord blood. You can also donate the, the placenta itself because certain, um, membranes like, um, that, that can be taken from the placenta and they can be used, um, for treatments of things like burn injuries. Mm. So, um, it's some really useful stuff. And then other parts of the placenta have different types of stem cells. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that I'll kind of briefly go over because whenever I think in general, whenever we hear about stem cell research or stem cell treatment, um, everybody kind of lumps stem cells into the same bag Mm -hmm. and there are different types, which Mm -hmm. is kind of important to, to, to note. So there are different I don't want to say grades, but there are different types sure. of stem cells. And the difference is how many different types of cells they can turn into. So the traditional definition of a stem cell 
It is a cell with the unique ability to develop into specialized cell types in the body. So a stem cell is a type of cell that can turn into different types of cell types, like, for example, um, a bone cell, a cartilage cell, Mm -hmm. a muscle cell. So this one cell type can be guided into um, turning into a variety of different cells. Mm -hmm. That's the general definition of a stem cell. So there are different types of stem cells and the difference between each category is how many different types of cells it can turn into. Okay. Mm -hmm. Totipotent stem cells are kind of the like ultimate stem cell. And an example of this is the zygote, which is the sperm and the ovum combined form a zygote. And the reason why this is totipotent is because it, this cell has the capacity to turn into every type of cell. Oh, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, including the placenta and all types of, you know, the lining, the chorion, and like all the different types Mm -hmm. of cells. Does anybody want to guess how many types of cells are found in the embryo and in the placenta? Um, You're the one who's very good at high numbers. And I imagine this is a high number. Ooh, so sorry, cell types. Cell, cell types. Not oh. number cells. You got like bone. Yeah. And muscle. And muscle. Cartilage. And so blood. keep in mind. Organ. Yeah. Each of these types will always have subcategories. Oof. So like, yeah. Oof. I don't know. I'm going to say, oh, I'm going to say the amount of bones in the body, 206. I'll, I'll say three dozen. How many is that? Oh, Lauren. So close. <laughs> really? Oh, man. How many? 220 cell types. <gasps> that was so good. That was so good. I was Congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that was impressive. <laughs> wow. But yeah, so a zygote will fall into that category. And then um, stem cells that you'll find in um, your cord blood or in the rest of your placenta, they'll fall into the category of multipotent stem cells, which means that they can develop into a limited number mm-hmm. of cell types of a particular lineage. And a lineage is basically, you know, uh, bone cells, and then you have a bunch of different types of bone cells. Mm-hmm. So, um, and these types of multipotent stem cells, other than from the placenta, they can be harvested from um, adult humans. Mm. And these cell types are what you'll get in bone marrow when people donate their bone marrow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's also in connective tissue and you can also find it in some of your molars actually. Ooh, I didn't realize that. Okay. So you you don't hear about people donating their wisdom teeth. (laughs) Knocked out in the back in a dark alley, getting their molars pulled out. Yeah, black market tooth (laughs) extraction. It might not be be enough. And I'm Uh, sure because they're multipotent stem cells, they probably only have the capacity to turn into more more teeth. (laughs) (laughs) And now I have the power to make as many teeth as I want. <laughs> that would be the worst like comic book villain. Yeah. You know? <laughs> He'd be the dentist. <laughs> that is a terrifying right? villain name though. It is. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's a I'm surprised it hasn't come up yet, to be honest. TM 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 TM. 
So there has been an increase in demand for the release of placentas in North America to be used in different type of placental rituals, such as burial, lotus births, and placentophagy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I know what that <laughs> word means. Not not for any particular reason. I just know. What, I know what you've experienced. I know what it. words. Yeah, I know what roots of words mean. Yeah, yeah. You've got some Latin background. I get it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I I understand the the burial thing because I know that there's a lot of Native American cultures that use the umbilicus, the umbilical like stump, and also Mm -hmm. the placenta in a lot of like, um, I guess, like. Uh, objects and there's uh, rituals and like a lot of religious, you know, significance around it. Yeah. Yeah. So some examples of that would be uh, in Bali, they actually call the placenta Ari Ari, which essentially translates to younger sibling and it's believed to protect and accompany the child for life. So after the birth, the placentas are cleaned and bathed in fragrant water And they are sealed in a coconut shell or a clay pot and either buried in the family's yard or thrown into the ocean during a ceremony. Mm. That's kind of cool to think about that. It's like, well, it's like the thing that has fed the child, like nourished it for so long. So the idea of, is it like a protecting like presence, I guess makes, makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And even the Mayans, they believe that uh, the tree under which they bury the child's placenta would protect the child for the rest of their life. So they took care into picking like a really good tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And you'll get this in other cultures as well. The Navajo, they believed in bur- burying their placenta within the child's family's land because it would ensure that the child would always return home safe. Mm which I think is a really, it's, it's nice. It's yeah. symbolic. So one thing that I had never heard about and frightens me so much is a lotus birth. And if you haven't heard about this before, it is when a mother leaves the umbilical cord attached onto the baby until it naturally and attached to the placenta until it dries and comes away from the baby naturally. And I quote, like the petals of a lotus flower. This seems, now correct me if I'm wrong, Sonia, dangerous. This seems dangerous. So I don't, I don't think it would, I mean, so are they I'm like, not, are they like, I've never seen it. <laughs> like, say you have this 24 inch long umbilical cord sure. attached to a one pound pancake. Yeah. Yeah. Are you like <laughs> coiling it up and like tying it to the baby so that you're oh. not just like dragging a t- <laughs> two foot cord attached to a one pound pancake? Yeah. Like around with you until it dries up? Like, that just seems like a lot of it seems like unnecessary a- work. Yeah. Yeah. It it does. And honestly, I'm not sure how long does it take, Julia, for the the um, remaining umbilical cord to fall off. The stump is is about like one to two weeks. OK. Oh, my yeah. gosh. So it'll take that long carrying around the placenta and the, the umbilical cord. <sighs> Can you imagine? It seems like too long. And I imagine it's going to be cold and tacky. You know what I mean? And very smelly. <laughs> right. It's just. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I can... <laughs> so this I is a thing that to... exists. So this is a thing that that happens. Hopefully not it's too often. I am. It's one of the least popular uh, <laughs> uses for a take-home placenta. Okay, good to know. <laughs> take-home placenta. Take-home. Get that. Get that little doggy bag, paper towel. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> And the last is, as I mentioned, placentophagy, and we'll cover that a little bit more in depth, actually, in a bit. But it's interesting to note um, for people that would like to take home their placentas, it's good to know that some hospitals will outright refuse Mm. Just because it is a little bit biohazardous, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know why I said a little bit. It is. It can be. <laughs> Actually, <biohazardous>. yeah. <laughs> it is in fact like biohazardous. Something is either biohazardous or not. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Exactly. So they some hospitals will refuse. Um, therefore, it's important to do your research beforehand, and you want to make sure you talk to the hospital that you're planning on giving birth at. Um, and make these arrangements beforehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and something that came up during my search is that you have to take care of your own transportation and packaging kind of of the organ. So make sure to get yourself like a, an Put ice cooler. cooler. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking just like Tupperware, but yeah, I mean, I guess you want to keep it cool, right? <laughs> the good Tupperware, not the kind that you've had in the microwave a hundred no. times. No, you got to buy fresh Tupperware for that. The one with those locking lids, you know? <laughs> Glass. Glass. The glass one. Pyrex. Yeah. And uh, another thing to note is that if you did have any pregnancy complications is another reason they might not let you take it home because they do need to examine the placenta Mm -hmm. after birth. And this is really not consistent between hospitals. Um, Some hospitals will examine the placenta after every single birth, and some of them will only examine it when you have a pregnancy complication. Interesting. Okay. So uh, one thing I thought was pretty interesting is that in 2004, the first ancient Egyptian mummified human placenta was identified at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich, Germany. And it was identified after being wrongly thought to be a liver. (laughs) Oh. That's cool. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's been, it's been dried for a long time. I I don't, you don't fault them. No, I don't fault them for for imagining (laughs) it was a different organ. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. So the practice is not common in ancient Egypt. They wouldn't um, bury with the placenta. They wouldn't mummify Mm -hmm. the placenta. And that leads researchers to believe that either this indicates the, the beginning of a new funerary practice of ancient Egyptians or that the mummified woman died of placental retention oh, okay. uh, and that it was kept, you know, during the mummification process. And this, uh, the paper that I was actually looking at, they also mentioned that it is very possible because of the similarities between the mummified placenta and a liver or a kidney. It could potentially mean that there have been some misclassifications of other mummified placentas in the past just because they look so similar. And maybe they weren't thinking about it. Yeah, they weren't imagining that that was, that could have been it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So which leads us to kind of (laughs) 
<laughs> the most squeamish topic, which would probably be um, placentophagy. And the definition of placentophagy is the art, the act. It's no. No, it's, it's, I'm sure it's an art as well. <laughs> <laughs> so the act of consuming the placenta postpartum at any time or by any person in either raw or processed form. It is currently debated whether placentophagy is a form of cannibalism. See episode 22 and a half, Black Friday special, Maneater. You're so it's good. very good. It's very good. Thank you, Sonia. Man, we don't even have to do our own plugs in this episode. This is great. Um, yeah. Mm, cannibalism. Is it cannibalism? That's a good, that is a good cue, huh? Boof. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I I remember I, I got into it like this. I went down a rabbit hole mm-hmm. on the internet of people eating their own placentas. And <laughs> I remember reading a, a thing about a woman who she, her, her milk had not come down and she had given birth and she took the placenta home anyway, for some reason. And she was like, I'm, I'm going to eat it because she read that like it helps with, all of the weird hormonal imbalances Mm -hmm. that you have to deal Mm -hmm. with after you give birth. And she said that she would have reoccurring dreams of like being burned alive and she wouldn't wake up until just before she died. So she was like, I know this is so I, this is something that I read like easily 10 years ago, but so she like cooked it up in a pan with some onions and garlic. I know I'm so sorry. And she ate like a small amount of it, but she said all of her symptoms went away. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I guess what I'm asking is, Sonia, is that true? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I took a look at um, the literature out there and, and you know, the reasons that women nowadays are consuming their placenta. And, and oftentimes, as Lauren mentioned, um, they'll do it because they think it'll prevent postpartum depression mm-hmm. um, by replenishing the hormone levels that drop right after having a baby Mm -hmm. from my searches, the older papers that say this is possible. Um, they're, they haven't done a really good job with their controls and they haven't, Mm -hmm. you know, picked a good sample of women. Um, and the more recent papers, there's actually a research group, um, in the department of anthropology at the university of Nevada that specializes in this research. And they do a good job at creating, you know, placebo controlled experiments. And so far from what I can tell, none of them have shown that eating encapsulated placenta will re will increase your hormone levels. Mm. So the, the thing is, is that a lot of studies that are, a lot of social studies that are done on this, you'll get a group of women that obviously really want it to work. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, and a lot of the times they'll have a placebo and the placebo will be, a, you know, another capsule of some other type of, you know, protein, or sometimes mm-hmm. their placebo will be a crushed placenta of another animal, or sometimes it'll just be nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the time they cannot tell there, there's not a significant difference between the placebo and the actual placenta pills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because apparently that seems to be the most 
common way that people are mm-hmm. ingesting there is that it gets like dried and powdered and yeah. put into a capsule and then you take it like a pill. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So because you don't want to fry it up with some onions. Right? No, <laughs> no. But I mean, I can understand, I can understand having, being in a place where you are, I mean, aside from like the woo woo factor, right? Like there's always going to be people who are like, I need to be in touch with my body. And so I'm going to eat my placenta. But then there's people who are like, they're really suffering and nothing has worked and they want, they they will do anything. They will do anything. Great. You want me to eat my placenta? I'll do it. You know, like, you know, hand me a loaf of bread, you know, like, (laughs) Sorry, I'm totally grossing out Julia. This is why a lot of people in general, they'll turn to alternative medicine just because the, they, nothing has worked so far and there's, they, they feel like they've tried everything. They feel Mm -hmm. like their doctors, you know, they, there's this kind of loss of trust between your doctors and you're just so tired of suffering with certain things and, and postpartum depression. I've never had a child, so I don't know what it's like, but it sounds terrifying. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, no, please. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds terrifying. And, and I can see why a lot of these women turn to this. Um, most of the time it is, they, they don't hear from, they don't hear about it from their doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I can tell most of the time they hear it by word of mouth or, or they'll have a recommendation from their midwife. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the reason why they turn to this is basically because other placental mammals, they eat, they eat their placenta right. after mm-hmm. giving birth. Um, and, and there are a few different types of reasons why they might participate in this activity. No one has really kind of pinned down the exact reason you can't ask them. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. A few of the theories are that they're cleaning the delivery site to avoid predators. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Either they shift towards carnivorousness right after giving birth, if they're generally hungry or they're specifically hungry for the placenta, or if it can soothe their pain threshold. So that's another, soothe the pain after birth. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons that they might do it. Unfortunately, um, there aren't any primate studies that have assessed the effects of uh, placenta consumption. So research is still unclear about that. And it is also really unclear as to why humans have evolved into not eating their placenta. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Do primates consume the placenta? They do. Okay. Interesting. The only, the only mammals that do not eat their placentas are strangely camelids so camels alpacas llamas mm-hmm. humans and aquatic mammals huh that is a wide variety of, <laughs> <laughs> of mammals they all got together and they're like look look it's gross <laughs> we don't have to do this we don't right? have to do this <laughs> so yeah so there are a few different types of theories um as to why humans don't eat their placentas one of them is after the invention of fire, that human females, they'd regularly be exposed to smoke and ash, which would get filtered by the placenta so as not to reach the fetus. And then it would the placenta would therefore trap all of these toxins and would be unfit for consumption. So maybe it turned them off that way. Wow. Okay. Or maybe, you know, a change in ideas of cleanliness or maybe 
you know, the, the response that they have to visual or olfactory cues given by the organ, maybe, you know, a certain smell now they relate to, would give signal to like a potentially infected food. Mm -hmm. There's also the theory of genetic drift, which is basically just, um, the change uh, in the frequency of a gene in a population just due to random sampling. So if, so so just generations, generations later, it just randomly happens that the females that wouldn't eat their placenta, they pass their genes on. I see, okay. Yeah, so it's kind of like uh, a lottery gene system instead of like a better gene system. I see, okay. So it's yeah. not like, you know, we evolved to not eat our placentas because it's better for us. It's just because just the roll of the dice, all the women who are like, uh, no, thanks. Uh, we're yeah. the ones that, move, Essentially. that pass that along. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That's the theory of genetic drift, but it's, 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 I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's very unlikely that we'll ever be able to pinpoint, um, the actual reason for this evolution. Interesting. Yeah. So I thought that while I was doing research for this that I would find a bunch of different cultures that whose women eat their own placentas but it was very very difficult to find and uh, and most of the time uh when it comes to placenta consumption um it'll be humans using the placenta of somebody else or an animal mm, for medicinal okay. purposes okay. so yeah, I haven't seen any cases. I might just have missed them, but I haven't seen any where the mother gives birth and eats her own placenta. Mm, okay. Yeah. So there's yeah. no, there's, so hum, we can make the overarching like claim that there, that no humans, regardless of culture, eat their own placentas immediately, yeah. immediately after birth. After birth. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was pretty much until 1970s USA when midwives and alternative health advocates started promoting this practice and would start claiming that placentophagy had therapeutic benefits. Mm. Okay. So this is like a recent, a very recent thing. This is very recent, which was very surprising because I assume the fad would have come from, you know, a 2000 year old yeah, tradition. tradition. Of mm -hmm. Yeah, but it, actually it's not. So some of the main reasons that women will eat their placenta is, as I mentioned, um, they hope to prevent postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. Another one is to prevent anemia oh, okay. uh, in the hopes to, you know, increase energy levels. They also hope to um, improve lactation. And they also think that eating your placenta will have pain relieving properties. Mm -hmm. Um most of these have pretty much been unproven as of right now. And especially the one about having pain relieving properties, although the placenta does produce an opioid enhancing factor to help with the pain of childbirth. It is um, destroyed during processing before encapsulation mm. when the placenta is uh, put at temperatures of over 70 degrees Celsius. Oh, okay. So as a medical professional, Sonia, um, Oh my God, I'm not a medical. <laughs> oh, <laughs> We're going to assume so for the, for the sake of this podcast, as a non-medical <laughs> would you recommend consuming one's own placenta? Um, I 
I would not do it personally, <laughs> just because there are some dangers associated with this. So okay. um, if, you know, during the processing and transportation, if there is some type of, you know, bacterial infection that starts growing on the placenta, mm-hmm. um, and if the processing steps aren't controlled really well, which I'm not sure if they are because it's not really standard process, um, then you could make yourself sick. Mm -hmm. Another thing that you need to be careful about is if you, if you do smoke, don't like, don't (laughs) during pregnancy, but if you do smoke during pregnancy, you don't want to eat your placenta because it's, it will have absorbed a lot of the toxins. Yikes. The same thing. Yeah. The same thing with certain drugs. Um, so definitely a no-no if you do that uh, during pregnancy. You shouldn't do it anyways, but don't eat your placenta if you do that during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So I would not recommend. Um, it's it's become increasingly popular. I've heard a lot of celebrities start doing it. Um, I know the Kard- a few of the Kardashians did it. Uh, mm-hmm. Your favorite people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds definitely well within their wheelhouse to do something like that. So it doesn't surprise me at all. (laughs) Yeah, I was looking at other celebrities. Hillary Duff did it. Padma Lakshmi did it. Alicia Silverstone. Yeah. Uh, Alicia Silverstone definitely did it. You know, (laughs) she did. (laughs) So then then I was like, you know, how much does this cost? And from a quick Google, Apparently it costs somewhere between 200 to 400 US dollars, but I'm so sure they paid so much more than that. Yeah. I would rather have a nice steak. Oh yeah, and a oh, bottle of wine. Absolutely. For $200. <laughs> and then that that's all the iron you need, right? Yeah. Like that's replenishes some iron. <laughs> yeah, like and you know that there's like boutique placental mm-hmm. packaging, like you get like the full experience. <laughs> and that's what the celebrities Yes, yeah, I yeah. have no doubt. I wish I could find I, I couldn't find a price tag for what they paid for it. I doubt they would disclose it because people would just be so angry oh that gosh. people are spending money on this. Yeah. But uh yeah, about two to four hundred dollars, which I think is kind of cheap because I would have assumed processing a human organ with like all the different steps and the waste that you're going to produce and like the equipment. Mm-hmm. I've, I assumed it would be a lot more expensive just because lab stuff is so expensive in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes yeah. me suspicious that this is not a legit, <laughs> like you're maybe you're not getting your placenta. Like maybe they're just like filling it with dust and they're yeah. like, yeah, here you go. You know, there's your placenta. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> Yeah, it's very possible. I mean, you you don't know. You don't have a lab in your own home to test out yeah. what's actually in there. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure some people swindle. It's just mm-hmm. like pixie stick dust. <laughs> it's like it's weirdly <laughs> sweet. The placenta oh, is delicious. delicious. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't even want to start thinking about how it'll taste, how no. it would taste. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. So that concludes... Um, this episode <laughs> on the human placenta. Yay. Wow, that was great! I learned, I learned so, so much. <laughs> that was wonderful. Thank you so much, Sonia. Of course, I, it was a pleasure. Uh, I have a lot to think about now. I feel like I feel like I really got to contemplate my body <laughs> in like a real visceral way, but. 
Anyway, um, Sonia, I hear you have a quiz for us. <laughs> I do. Hooray. This, this quiz is called Trust Me, I'm Not a Doctor, a quiz on alternative medicine. So question one, Ayurveda is an alternative medicine originating in India over 8,000 years ago. Some branches of this practice deal in surgery, but more contemporary practices consist of using plant and animal-derived medicines to balance one's energies. Which of the following is the closest English translation of the Sanskrit word Ayurveda? A. Science of life. B. Healing of the soul. C. Recipe for immortality. Or D. Tickle on the spine. Question two. True or false? Acupuncture, the practice of inserting thin needles into the skin, is endorsed by the FDA for pain management. Question three. This controversial alternative medical practice was developed in 1796 by the German physician Samuel Hahnemann. It is based on the belief that like cures like, which is the notion that a disease can be cured by a substance that produces similar symptoms in healthy people. For example, if onions make your eyes water, they can be used as a remedy for allergies. Practitioners believe that the lower the dose, the stronger the medicine. Therefore, they will dilute a natural substance with alcohol or water until there are only trace amounts of it in solution. What is the name of this alternative medicine whose name originates from the Greek word for similar or of the same kind? Number four, Netflix's newish documentary series titled Unwell created a buzz around a form of alternative medicine called apitherapy. This treatment has been more traditionally used to treat patients with chronic inflammatory diseases such as arthritis or multiple sclerosis, but it has become increasingly popular as a treatment for Lyme disease. Apitherapy uses products from what animal? Number five. Cupping therapy consists of applying heated cups, usually made of glass, to the skin to create suction and draw the blood to the skin surface. Proponents of this practice believe it can aid in treating many ailments, including back pain, migraines, arthritis, high cholesterol, and even constipation. From what country did this practice originate? Question six. Aloe vera is a succulent plant originating from the Arabian Peninsula that is often cultivated for medicinal uses. Which of the following skin ailments should not be treated with aloe vera? A. A sunburn. B. Blisters. C. Folliculitis. D. Eczema. Number seven. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services reported that Americans spend $30.2 billion a year on alternative and complementary medicines in 2012, none of which is covered by insurance. Is this more or less than the amount spent on books, both educational and recreational, of that same year? Number eight. This herb, native to Europe, has been used as a remedy for liver and gallbladder problems for hundreds of years. 
This herb gained notoriety in the 19th century from its use in absinthe and has been long believed to have hallucinogenic properties, which earned it an almost century-long ban in the United States from 1912 to 2007. Question 9. Goop markets itself as a wellness and lifestyle brand and is most famous for its controversial products such as their, and I quote, this smells like my vagina candle. Their wearable stickers that they claim rebalance the energy frequency in our bodies and their jade vaginal eggs. This brand has continuously been criticized by healthcare professionals since its inception in 2008 and most recently has been accused by National Health Service Chief Executive Simon Stevens of peddling misinformation, dubious wellness products and dodgy procedures. This lifestyle and beauty business is reportedly worth $250 million and now has its own Netflix series. What well-known actor, either male or female, founded Goop? Question 10. Three of these are alternative medical practices. One of them I made up. A. Iridology, the medical diagnosis through the examination of the patterns of the iris in the eye. B. Magnet therapy, which is the use of low-level magnetic fields to positively influence health. C. Urine therapy, drinking or applying one's own undiluted urine or homeopathic potions containing urine for the treatment of ailments. D. Canine lingual treatment, the act of having a dog lick the area affected by a bacterial skin condition in place of using antibiotics. We'll give you about a minute to think about all of this, and then we'll be back with your answers. Of all the mystery and wonder and beauty on this earth, nothing can compare to the miracle of birth. Well, your cervix has been closed and plugged with mucus But soon that viscous plug will be discharged It's called the bloody show And explosive diarrhea Means that labor's drawing nearer And those sharp, painful contractions Cause your cervix to enlarge Beautiful! Then you'll race your ass over to the hospital where they'll strap you in for the hell ride of your life It's what your body's made for You'll soon be in so much pain That you'll probably exclaim Please just kill me now Dr. Dula or midwife This is a very good quiz Yes uh, One in which my husband will be absolutely infuriated by But um, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to that in one of the answers But yeah Awesome. All right, we're ready. Lay it on us again. Okay. Question one. Ayurveda is an alternative medicine originating in India over 8,000 years ago. Some branches of this practice deal in surgery, but more contemporary practices consist of using plant and animal-derived medicines to balance one's energies. Which of the following is the closest English translation of the Sanskrit word Ayurveda? A, science of life, 
B, healing of the soul. C, recipe for immortality. Or D, tickle on the spine. Those are all very good. Those are and <laughs> I did I was thinking that Veda meant life. Yeah, I was my first thing was science. Science of life. Science of life. Yeah. So I'm thinking maybe it's A. But I like tickle on the spine. I know. Tickle of the spine is just <laughs> a million kisses to the angels. Okay. We'll, like, t- we'll go with science of life. Is it science of life? It is a science of life. Yes. Question two. True or false? Acupuncture, the practice of inserting thin needles into the skin, is endorsed by the FDA for pain management. So I do know that like sports players, mm-hmm. football players and basketball players and things, sports players. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Tell me more, Lauren. Tell about me more these about sports these sports men. Um, I do know that like the NFL and the Major League Baseball and everybody, yeah. they utilize yeah. acupuncture and apparently it does work, but I don't know if it's endorsed endorsed by the fda that's okay therein I'll, lies the I'd, rub. I'd go with you i'd say false false I'd say that it's not endorsed so it is true Ooh. in 2017 the fda released a proposal recommending that medical providers inform themselves and their patients on the potential benefits of acupuncture to curb opioid use in the united states all right oh that's great okay cool well, good for the FDA. Look at you. <laughs> I like I like I've heard it's good for like headaches and stuff like mm-hmm. that too. Mm-hmm. And I think as long as I didn't as long as I wasn't able to see any of the needles in my sure. skin. And I know that it's not supposed to really hurt actually like the way that the needles go in it doesn't hurt you like mm-hmm. it does if you were getting a shot or a tattoo or whatever. Like in their, you know, thin they're very thin. Mm-hmm. Um but I think as long as I didn't see it, I would be okay. Yeah. A friend of mine recently has been doing acupuncture yeah. and she said it's very, it feels very weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said weird thoughts kept popping into her head. Ooh. And she was like, <laughs> I don't know if it was because I was like super tired or like stressed at work or whatever, mm-hmm. but she was like, I was just, I would just be like, okay, I'm going to try and relax. And then like just weird things would just like oh, float past Because it's brain. impossible to relax. <laughs> That's true, because it's impossible to relax. That's probably why. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the needles. I feel like I'd go for a massage instead. Right, yeah. 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 I mean. So question three. This controversial alternative medical practice was developed in 1796 by the German physician Samuel Hahnemann. It is based on the belief that like cures like which is the notion that a disease can be cured by a substance that produces similar symptoms in healthy people. For example, if onions make your eyes water, they can be used as a remedy for allergies. Practitioners believe that the lower the dose, the stronger the medicine. Therefore, they will dilute a natural substance with alcohol or water until there are only trace amounts of it in solution. What is the name of this alternative medicine whose name originates from the Greek word for similar or of the same kind? So I'll take this because this <laughs> this makes my husband absolutely. I mean, Nuts. He, yeah. he there are very few things. On, there are literally two things on this earth that can make him go from like super calm to incandescently rageful. <laughs> one is bad drivers and the other one is homeopathy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Question four. 
Netflix's newest documentary series titled Unwell created a buzz around a form of alternative medicine called apitherapy. This treatment has been more traditionally used to treat patients with chronic inflammatory diseases such as arthritis and multiple sclerosis, but it has become increasingly popular as a treatment for Lyme disease. Apitherapy uses products from what animal? I'm thinking it's bees. Oh yeah, it's got to be bees. Yes, absolutely. Honeybees specifically. So it's not just they just get stung a million times. It's like they actually take, you said product from the bees? Yeah. So apitherapy, the word kind of encompasses the use of all different types Mm -hmm. of products from bees. Mm -hmm. But um, it has, but for um, arthritis, often they'll self sting. So they'll grab a bee with a tweezers and then put it on the joint where they're having pain and they will sting themselves. So this is pretty dangerous, Mm -hmm. obviously, especially if you're allergic Yeah, and um, bee allergies, this, this kind of allergy, you can sting yourself a hundred times. And then on the 101st, you could be allergic. (laughs) So these type of bee sting therapies, they recommend you always have an EpiPen on hand. Jeez. That seems more trouble than it's worth, honestly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Question five. Cupping therapy consists of applying heated cups, usually made of glass, to the skin to create suction and draw the blood to the skin's surface. Proponents of this practice believe it can aid in treating many ailments, including back pain, migraines, arthritis, high cholesterol, and even constipation. From what country did this practice originate? So, um... so th- it reminds me of a movie with Tony Ja called Tom Young Gung. It's one of my favorite martial arts films. Did you think I was into martial arts films? I'm into martial arts films, specifically Tony Ja martial arts films. Um, <laughs> but anyway, Tom Young Gung, also known as the protector, uh, there is a scene where he runs into um, like a spa and he yells, where is my elephant? Because he's looking for his elephant. And because he's speaking Thai, I know Julia's looking Am around. Am I asleep right now? <laughs> no, it's, it just totally <laughs> makes sense in the end. And because he's speaking Thai, everyone's like, what? And then he starts killing everyone. Well, one of the guys is getting his his back cupped. And I think it's Japanese. <laughs> that did Everybody you follow that? that it's a first of all it's a great movie tony okay. job but he like kicks everybody's ass okay and one of the things is, is it's very it's a dramatic moment the guy who's getting cupped stands up from the bed and his back is all covered in cups and then Tony Jock kicks him and he smashes in, he like <laughs> goes backwards and the cups smash and he dies because he has a million cuts on his back so <laughs> But he's speaking Thai. I'm like speechless right now. <laughs> so Lauren's answer is Jap is Japan, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go crazy. I'm gonna say America. Ooh, ooh, good. Okay, yeah, no, I love this. I love this. No, please. Tell so the us. answer, the answer is actually China. Oh China. shoot, I was so close. You're much closer. Geographically. <laughs> Everybody watch Tom Young Gung. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> So question six, aloe vera is a succulent plant originating from the Arabian Peninsula that is often cultivated for medicinal uses. Which of the following skin ailments should not be treated with aloe vera? A, sunburn, B, blisters, C, folliculitis, D, eczema. 
So we know they use it for sunburn. Yes. I was thinking blisters because you don't want to, you didn't want to put it on an open wound. I was thinking eczema because eczema is like more of a, like a system thing. But you know what? My first indication, my first thought was blisters too. Okay. So maybe we'll go, we'll, we'll go blisters. blisters. So the answer is C, folliculitis. Oh, oh. how about that? Huh. So folliculitis is normally caused by a bacterial or fungal infection. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it would require an antibacterial cream or antibiotics to get rid of. Question seven. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services reported that Americans spent $30.2 billion in 2012 on alternative and complementary medicines, none of which are covered by insurance. Is this more or less than the amount spent on books, both educational and recreational, that same year? I think it's got to be more. I'm sure it's got to be more. Is it more? It is. <sighs> it is. It is more. Man. So in 2012, Americans spent a total of $27.8 billion on both recreational and educational books, and that's versus $30.2 billion on alternative medicines. Wow. That's... Gosh. That's that's so much money. Yeah. Yeah. Out of control. Question eight. This herb native to Europe has been used as a remedy for liver and gallbladder problems for hundreds of years. It gained notoriety in the 19th century from its use in absinthe and has been long believed to have hallucinogenic properties, which earned it an almost century long ban in the United States from 1912 to 2007. It's got to be wormwood. Yeah, okay, wormwood, because I couldn't think of what it was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, it's wormwood. Nice. Did you, do you drink absinthe? No, I, I hate that flavor. <laughs> My brother was like super into it for a couple of years. Yeah, there's a surprise. About that, about that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I've never tried it, but I've heard that it, it, it tastes like licorice. Yeah. There's fun. It's just like, yeah, it, it tastes like green NyQuil or black licorice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can, I mean, there's like different cocktails you can make with it that you don't have to just like drink the straight absinthe. But yeah. um, but the ritual is that you like have the liquor in the glass and then you put a little special spoon over it and a little sugar cube and then you dilute your liquor with water that slowly drips over the sugar cube and dissolves it into your glass of liquor to make it able to be Consumed. Drunk. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, I it's mean, very it's, French. Yeah. It's an extremely French thing. I mean, let's be honest. You have to wait like 45 minutes for your drink to be ready. That's definitely very French. <laughs> so question nine. Goop markets itself as a wellness and lifestyle brand and is most famous for its controversial products, such as their This Smells Like My Vagina Candle, They're wearable stickers that they claim rebalance the energy frequency in our bodies. And they're jade vaginal eggs. This brand has continuously been criticized by healthcare professionals since its inception in 2008. And most recently has been accused by National Health Service Chief Executive Simon Stevens of peddling misinformation, dubious wellness products, and dodgy procedures. This lifestyle and beauty business is reportedly worth $250 million and has its own Netflix series. What well-known actor, either male or female, founded Goop? That's Gwyneth Paltrow. 
It is. And it makes me so angry. (laughs) Yeah. Goop is literally the worst. I mean, really body stickers that realign your chi or whatever. Like, come on. If only we'd have thought of that. Oh, I know. We could have made, we could have made $250 million and have our own Netflix special. Jeez. And they got, they got sued because of their false advertising Mm -hmm. and the payout was only 140,000, I think, which is ridiculous compared to $250 million. Mm Oh, she makes me furious. (laughs) Yeah, it's ridiculous. I totally agree. So final question 10. Three of these are alternative medical practices. One of them I made up. A, iridology, a medical diagnosis through the examination of the patterns of the iris in the eye. B, magnet therapy, the use of low-level magnetic fields to positively influence health. C, urine therapy drinking or applying one's own undiluted urine or homeopathic potions containing urine for treatment of ailments or D canine lingual treatment, the act of having a dog lick the area affected by a bacterial skin condition in place of using antibiotics. Magnets is real. Magnets is real. Urine therapy is real. (sighs) And I was thinking the iris was real too. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking it's uh, now here's, here's my inside baseball thought. I'm thinking, cute dog. I'm thinking Sonia <laughs> was looking around her apartment and trying to figure out what her fake one would be. And she took an, she spotted her puppy and she was like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. So I'm going to say canine lingual therapy is what you made up. Absolutely. <laughs> I knew it. I love you it. couldn't have been more correct <laughs> if you had been here. <laughs> <laughs> ha I am I am a master of the human psyche. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. But yeah, I couldn't come up with anything. <laughs> no, that's like, good oh though. That's a good made up one because people always say like dogs' mouths are cleaner and like that's why uh-huh. they lick their own wounds because yeah. they like that it like speeds up the healing or whatever. So no, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> um wow. Thank you so much, Sonia. What a delight. Pleasure. What a delight. We totally enjoyed this. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, do you have anything to plug that you want to plug on the show for our you know, tens of listeners? Um, sure. Donate your placentas. <laughs> Great. That's good. That's important. Yes, definitely. And um, yeah, keep donating to research. <laughs> Just keep donating Just your placentas, Every time everybody. you got a placenta. Just... Give it to science. (laughs) Keep supporting your universities and all other um, research institutions because they do a lot of hard work. And especially during times of COVID, uh, I think a lot of people realize how uh, little of the money that we actually spend as, you know, a country uh, actually goes to research. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And yeah. And if you have, you know, any questions, um, you can always email me. Uh, you guys can post my email or okay. Okay. forward me the emails. That would be great. And uh, yeah, so yeah, that's all. Awesome. <laughs> Thank awesome. You. Thank you, Sonia. Um, yeah, and uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. We also want to plug our thing. Oh, yeah. Turns out we have merch now. 
Uh, yeah. So yeah, I don't know if you saw it on our social media channels um, or on our website, but we have a link to T Public, uh, where we now have a storefront, and we have one design out there right now, which is just our logo that you can get on t-shirts and hoodies and baseball shirts and masks. mugs and masks and notebooks, all kinds of things. And it's been really fun. Like I've gotten like four texts in the last week of people like showing me pictures of the of the products they got with like our faces on them. It's, it's amazing. It's hilarious. Um, and we also have a couple of other designs in the works right now. So yeah. keep an eye out for that um, for this ho- upcoming holiday season. Yeah. Upcoming holiday season. Buy yourself a misinformation t-shirt or buy a loved one a misinformation t-shirt. Yes. We have sizes up to like 4X, I Oh think. my gosh. Yeah, yeah they do Extremely a great job. Inclusive. Their products are great. Yeah. Um, and there's usually sales, so. Oh, yeah. Saying. Oh, and I have uh, I think we just recently got an email that there's going to be like a pretty decent holiday sale coming up in the next couple of weeks. So oh, ooh, there's some inside baseball for you. Yeah. Um, so thank you to everyone who's already supported us on the Public site and bought some product. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah, we totally appreciate oh, it. Oh, and by the way, if you've listened this far in the episode, next week... We have a much more appetizing topic for you. Thank you for reminding me. Next week is cheese along at home. Yes. So we are going to provide you with a shopping list. Yes. If you so choose, if you want to eat along with us, we're going to tell you a list of four cheeses that want, that seem like you should be able to get them in any of your grocery stores. Um, you know, grab one, have a have them ready on a plate, and you can listen along to our episode next week for um, American Thanksgiving. Yeah, so definitely check out um, our Facebook and our Twitter. We are at MissInfoPod on Twitter, and we are Misinformation colon a Trivia Podcast on Facebook, and we will be providing a shopping list <laughs> there. I never thought we would do this, but I'm just so glad. It will be a nice amuse-bouche for the Americans for uh, our American Thanksgiving later that week. So, uh, yeah, buy a t-shirt, buy some cheese, sit at home and cheese along with us next Tuesday. So, uh, after all that housekeeping, thank you again to Sonia. And uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. Yep. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.